I went down early in the morning. We went into the churchyard, close to the graves of my unknown parents. And there, my sister was laid quietly in the earth, while the larks sang high above it, and the light wind strewed it with beautiful shadows of clouds and trees. When the shadows of evening were closing in, I took an opportunity of getting into the garden with Biddy for a little talk. I suppose it will be difficult for you to remain here now, Biddy dear? Oh, I can't do so, Mr Pip. I shall be often down here now. I am not going to leave poor Joe alone. Biddy, don't you hear me? Yes, Mr Pip. Biddy, I made a remark respecting my coming down here often to see Joe, which you received with a marked silence. Have the goodness, Biddy, to tell me why. Are you quite sure, then, that you will come to see him often? Time went on, whether or no, as he has a way of doing, and I came of age. I repaired to Mr Jagger's office, a model of punctuality. Well, Pip, I must call you Mr Pip today. Congratulations, Mr Pip. Thank you, sir. Now, my young friend, I'm going to have a word or two with you. If you please, sir. What do you suppose you are living at the rate of? At the rate of, sir? At the rate of. Reluctantly. I confessed myself quite unable to answer the question. I thought so. Now, I have asked you a question, my friend. Have you anything to ask me? Is my benefactor to be made known to me today? No, ask another. Is that confidence to be imparted to me soon? Wave that a moment and ask another. Have I anything to receive, sir? Aha! I thought we should come to it. Now, Mr Pip, take this piece of paper, now unfold it, and tell me what it is. This is a banknote for £500. That is a banknote for £500, and that handsome sum of money, Pip, is your own, and at the rate of that handsome sum of money per annum you are to live until the donor of the whole appears. There was a question just now, Mr Jaggers, which you desired me to wait for a moment. I hope I am doing nothing wrong in asking it again. What is it? Is it likely that my patron will soon... Will soon what? That's no question as it stands, you know. Will soon come to London, or summon me anywhere else. Come, I'll be playing with you, my friend Pip. That's a question I must not be asked. When that person discloses, you and that person will settle your own affairs. When that person discloses, it will not be necessary for me to know anything about it. And that's all I have got to say. When the £500 had come into my pocket, a thought had come into my head, which had been often there before and it appeared to me that Wemmick was a good person to advise with concerning such thought. Mr Wemmick, I am very desirous to serve a friend. This friend is trying to get on in commercial life, but finds it difficult to make a beginning. Now, I want, somehow, to help him to a beginning. Mr Pip, I should just like to run over with you on my fingers, if you please, the names the various bridges up as high as Chelsea Reach. Let's see. There's London, one, Southwark, two, Blackfriars, three, Waterloo, four, Westminster, five, Vauxhall, six. There's as many as six, you see, to choose from. I don't understand you. Choose your bridge, Mr Pip, and take a walk upon your bridge, and pitch your money into the Thames over the centre arch of your bridge, and you know the end of it. Serve a friend with it, 
And you may know the end of it too, but it's a less pleasant and profitable end. Then is it your opinion that a man should never... Invest portable property in a friend? Certainly he should not. Unless he wants to get rid of the friend, and then it becomes a question of how much portable property it may be worth to get rid of him. And that is your deliberate opinion, Mr Wemmick? That is my deliberate opinion in this office. Ah, but would that be your opinion at Woolworth? Mr Pip, Woolworth is one place and this office is another. My Woolworth sentiments must be taken at Woolworth. None but my official sentiments can be taken in this office. I devoted the next ensuing Sunday afternoon to taking Mr Wemmick's Woolworth sentiments, and before a week was out, we found a worthy young merchant who wanted intelligent help. Secret articles were signed, of which Herbert was the subject, and I paid him half of my £500 down. Well, you know, Mr Pip, I must tell you one thing. This is devilish good of you. I shall never forget the radiant face with which Herbert came home one afternoon and told me of his having fallen in with one Clarica, the young merchant's name. I did really cry in good earnest when I went to bed to think that my expectations had done some good to somebody. The turning point of my life now opens on my view, but before I proceed, I must give one chapter to Estella. It is not much to give to the theme that so long filled my heart. Pip, Pip, will you never take warning? Of what? Of me. Warning not to be attracted by you, do you mean, Estella? Do I mean? If you don't know what I mean, you are blind. I should have replied that love was commonly reputed blind. The time has come round when Miss Havisham wishes to have me for a day at Satis. You are to take me there and bring me back, if you will. Can you take me? We went down on the next day but one. We were seated by the fire, and Miss Havisham had Estella's arm drawn through her own, when Estella gradually began to detach herself, moving to the great chimney-piece, where she stood looking down at the fire. What? Are you tired of me? Only a little tired of myself. Speak the truth, you ingrate! You are tired of me! Estella looked at her with perfect composure, and again looked down at the fire. Look at her! Look at her! So hard and thankless, on the hearth where she was reared, where I took her into this wretched breast when it was first bleeding from its stab. But what would you have? Love! You have it! I have not. Mother by adoption, I owe everything to you. All I possess is freely yours. All that you have given me is at your command to have again. Beyond that, I have nothing. And if you ask me to give you what you never gave me, my gratitude and duty cannot do impossibilities. Did I never give her love? Did I never give her burning love? Let her call me mad. Let her call me mad. Why should I call you mad, I of all people? Does anyone live who knows what set purposes you have half as well as I do? When have you found me false to your teaching? When have you found me unmindful of your lessons? When have you found me giving admission here? She touched her bosom with her hand. To anything that you excluded. Be just to me. So proud, so proud. Who taught me to be proud? Who praised me when I learnt my lesson? So hard, so hard. Who taught me to be hard? Who praised me when I learnt my lesson? But to be proud and hard to me. Estella. Estella. Estella to be proud and hard to me. 
I begin to think that I almost understand how this comes about. If you had taught your adopted daughter from the dawn of her intelligence that there was such a thing as daylight, but that it was made to be her enemy and destroyer, and she must always turn against it, if you had done this and then for a purpose had wanted her to take naturally to the daylight and she could not do it, you would have been disappointed and angry. So I must be taken as I have been made. The success is not mine, the failure is not mine, but the two together make me. It is impossible to turn this leaf of my life without putting Bentley Drummle's name upon it, or I would very gladly. Heavy in figure, movement and comprehension, he was idle, proud, reserved and suspicious. He came of rich people down in Somersetshire who had nursed this combination of qualities until they made the discovery that it was just of age and a blockhead. At a certain assembly ball at Richmond, this blundering drummle so hung about her and with so much toleration on her part that I resolved to speak to her concerning him. Are you tired, Estella? Rather, Pip. You should be. Say, rather, I should not be, for I have my letter to Satis House to write before I go to sleep. Recounting tonight's triumph, surely a very poor one, Estella. What do you mean? I didn't know there had been any. Estella, do look at that fellow in the corner yonder that is looking over here at us. Why should I look at him? What is there in that fellow in the corner yonder that I need to look at? Indeed, that is the very question I want to ask you, for he has been hovering about you all night. Moths and all sorts of ugly creatures hover about a lighted candle. Can the candle help it? No, but cannot the Estella help it? Well, perhaps. Yes, anything you like. But, Estella, do hear me speak. It makes me wretched that you should encourage a man so generally despised as Drummle. You know that he is despised. Pip, don't be foolish about its effect on you. It may have its effect on others, and it may be meant to have. It's not worth discussing. Yes, it is, because I have seen you give him looks and smiles this very night, such that you never give to... to me. Do you want me, then, to deceive and entrap you? Do you deceive and entrap him, Estella? Yes, and many others, all of them but you. I was now three and twenty years of age. We had left Barnard's Inn more than a year and lived in the temple. Business had taken Herbert on a journey to Marseille. I was alone, dispirited and anxious. We lived at the top of the last house and the wind rushing up the river shook the house that night like discharges of cannon. When the rain came with it and dashed against the windows, I thought, raising my eyes to them as they rocked, that I might have fancied myself in a storm-beaten lighthouse. I was listening at the window and thinking how the wind assailed and tore it when I heard a footstep on the stair. I took up my reading lamp and went out to the stairhead. There is someone down there, is there not? Yes. What floor do you want? The top. Mr. Pip. That is my name. There is nothing the matter? Nothing the matter. I made out that he had long, iron-grey hair, 
His age was about 60. Pray, what is your business? Oh, my business, ah, uh, yes. Yes, I will explain my business. By your leave. Do you wish to come in? Yes, I wish to come in, master. What do you want? It's disappointing to a man after having looked forward so distant and come so far, but you're not to blame for that. Give me half a minute, please. I looked at him attentively, but I did not know him. There's no one now, is there? Why do you, a stranger, coming into my rooms at this time of night, ask that question? You're a game one. I'm glad you growed up a game one, but don't catch hold of me. You'd be sorry afterwards to have done it. I relinquished the intention he had detected, for I knew him. I could not have known my convict more distinctly than I knew him now. You acted noble, my boy, noble Pip, and I have never forgot it. Stay! Keep off! If you are grateful to me for what I did when I was a little child, I hope you have shown your gratitude by mending your way of life. But I have done well since then, and you must understand, I cannot wish to renew that chance intercourse of long ago under these different circumstances. Still, however, you have found me out, and there must be something good in the feeling. You are wet, and you look weary. Will you drink something before you go? May I be so bold as to ask you how you have done so well? How? I have been chosen to succeed to some property. Might a mere varmint ask it whose property? I don't know. Could I make a guess, I wonder, at your income since you came of age? As to the first figure now. Five? Concerning a guardian, because there ought to have been some such guardian whilst you was a minor. Some, some lawyer, maybe. As to the first letter of that lawyer's name now, would it be J? Put it as the employer of that lawyer whose name begun with J and might be Jaggers. However, you have found me out, you says just now. Well, however did I find you out? Well, I wrote from Portsmouth to a person in London for particulars of your address. That person's name? Oi, Wemmick. I seemed to be suffocating. The room began to surge and turn. He caught me, drew me to the sofa, and put me up against the cushions. Yes, Pip, dear boy, I've made a gentleman on you. It's me what has done it. I swore at that time, sure as ever I earned a guinea, that that guinea should go to you. I lived rough so that you should live smooth. I, I worked hard so that you should be above work. Look at you here, Pip. I'm your second father. You're my son. Don't you mind talking, Pip. You ain't looked slowly forward to this as I have. You wasn't prepared for this as I was. But didn't you never think it might be me? Oh, never, never, never. Well, you see, it was me, and single-handed. Never a soul in it but my own self. Oh, and Mr. Jaggers. Was there no one else? No. Who else should there be? Where will you put me? I must be put somewhere, dear boy. My friend and companion is absent. You must have his room. He won't come back tomorrow, will he? No, not tomorrow. Because, uh, looky here, dear boy. Caution is necessary. How do you mean? Caution. Oh, by God, it's death. What's death? I was sent for life. <laughs> it's death to come back. I should certainly be hanged if took. Miss Havisham's intentions towards me, all a mere dream. 
Estella not designed for me. I only suffered in Satis house as a convenience, but sharpest and deepest pain of all. It was for the convict, guilty of I knew not what crimes, that I had deserted Joe. And I could never, never, never undo what I had done. And so, in a sort of dream or sleep-waking, I found myself sitting by the fire again, waiting for him to come to breakfast. By and by, his door opened and he came out. I could not bring myself to bear the sight of him. And I thought he had a worse look by daylight. I do not even know by what name to call you. You assumed some name, I suppose, on board ship? Yes, dear boy. I took the name of Provis. What is your real name? Magwitch, christened Abel. Are you known in London? Not over and above, dear boy. I was uh, in the provinces, mostly. Were you tried in London? First knowed Mr Jaggers that way. Jaggers was for me, and what I'd done is worked out and paid for. And this is the gentleman what I made. He took out of his pocket a great thick pocketbook bursting with papers and tossed it on the table. There's something worth spending in that pair book, dear boy. It's yours. All I've got ain't mine. It's yours. And, and blast you all, blast you everyone from the judge in his wig to the colonist staring up the dust. I'll show a better gentleman than the whole lot of you put together. Stop. I want to speak with you. I want to know what is to be done. How are you going to be guarded against the danger that you have incurred? Well, dear boy, the uh, danger ain't so great. Without I was informed again, the danger ain't so much to signify. And how long do you remain? Oh, how long? I'm not going back. I've come for good. There being, to my knowledge, a lodging house in Essex Street, the back of which looked into the temple, I first of all repaired to that house and was fortunate to secure the second floor for my uncle, Mr Provis. This business transacted, I turned my face to Little Britain. Now, Pip, be careful. I will, sir. Don't commit yourself. Don't commit anyone. You understand? Anyone. Don't tell me anything. I don't want to know anything. I am not curious. I merely want, Mr Jaggers, to assure myself that what I have been told is true. But did you say told or informed? Told would seem to imply verbal communication. You can't have verbal communication with a man in New South Wales, you know. I will say informed, Good. Mr. Jackers. I have been informed by a person named Abel Magwitch that he is the benefactor so long unknown to me. That is the man in New South Wales. And only he. And only he. I'm not so unreasonable, sir, as to think you're at all responsible for my mistakes and wrong conclusions, but I always supposed it was Miss Havisham. As you say, Pip, I'm not at all responsible for that. And yet it looked so like it, sir. Not a particle of evidence, Pip. Take nothing on looks. Take everything on evidence. There's no better rule. I went straight back to the temple. Expecting Herbert all the time, I dared not go out. At length, one evening, 
I was roused by the welcome footstep on the staircase. In an instant, I saw Provis Jackknife shining in his hand. Quiet! It's Herbert. Handel, my dear fellow, how are you? And again, how are you? And again, how are... Oh, hello. I beg your pardon. Uh, Herbert, my dear friend, this is a visitor of mine. Provis came forward with a little black book and then addressed himself to Herbert. Take it in your right hand. Say, Lord, strike you dead on the spot if you split in any way some ever. Do as he wishes. Lord, strike me dead on the spot if I ever split in any way some ever. Kiss it! Herbert complied. Now you're on oath. I recounted the whole of the secret, and it was midnight before I took Probus round to Essex Street and saw him safely in at his own dark door. I turned straight back to the temple, where Herbert received me with open arms. What? What is to be done? My poor dear Handel, I am too stunned to think. So was I, Herbert, when the blow first fell. Still, something must be done. Handel, you feel convinced that you can take no further benefits from him, do you? Fully. Surely you would too if you were in my place. And you feel convinced that you must break with him? Herbert, can you ask me? Then the main thing to be done is to get him out of England. You will have to go with him and then he may be induced to go. That done, extricate yourself in heaven's name, and we'll see it out together, dear old boy. Now, Herbert, with reference to gaining some knowledge of his history, there is but one way that I know of. I must ask him point blank. Yes, ask him when we sit at breakfast in the morning. He came round at the appointed time. After you were gone last night, I told my friend of the struggle that the soldiers found you engaged in on the marshes. You remember? Remember? <laughs> I think so. We want to know something about that man. And about you. Is not this as good a time as another for our knowing more? Well... You're on oath, you know, Pips, comrade. Assuredly. And looky here, whatever I've done, it's worked out and paid for. So be it. Dear boy, and Pips, comrade. I'll put it all at once into a mouthful of English. In jail and out of jail. In jail and out of jail. In jail and out of jail. That's my life, pretty much. Down to such time as I got shipped off. Arda Pip stood my friend. At Epsom Races, a matter of over 20 years ago, I got acquainted with a man whose right name was Compison. And that's the man, dear boy, what you saw me a-pounding in the ditch. To judge from appearances, you're out of luck, says Compeyson to me. Well, yes, master, I've never been in much, I says. Luck changes, says Compeyson. Perhaps yours is going to change. He laughed, and he gave me five shillings, and he appointed me for next night. Now, I went to Compeyson next night, and Compeyson took me on to be his man and partner. There was another in with Compeyson, as was called Arthur. Uh, him and Compeyson had been in bad things with a rich lady some years before, and they'd made a pot of money by it. But him and me was soon busy. My missus as I had at the time, well, stop though. <laughs> I ain't brought her in. There ain't no need to go into that. At last, me and Compeyson was both convicted for felony. When we was put in the dock, I noticed first of all what a Gentleman Compeyson looked, and what a common sort of wretch I looked. When the prosecution opened, and the evidence was put short, I noticed how heavy it all bore on me, and how light on him. And when it came to character, 
Weren't it Compeyson as had been to the school? And, and weren't it his school fellows as was in this position and in that? And weren't it me as had been dried before? And as had been known uphill and downtail and bridewells and lockups? And when the verdict came, weren't it Compeyson as was recommended to mercy on account of good character and bad company? And weren't it me as never got a word but guilty? And when we were sentenced, ain't it? Him that gets seven year and me fourteen and, and ain't it him as the judge feels sorry for and ain't it me as the judge perceives to be nothing more than an old offender of fire passion. Is he dead? Is who dead, dear boy? Compeyson. Oh, he hopes I am. If he's alive, you may be sure. Herbert had been writing in the cover of a book. He softly pushed it over to me and I read in it. Young Havisham's name was Arthur. Compeyson is the man who professed to be Miss Havisham's lover. I said to Herbert that before I could go abroad, I must see both Estella and Miss Havisham. I set off by the early morning coach before it was yet light. When I went into the coffee room at the Blue Boar Inn, whom should I see but Bentley Drummle? You have just come down? Yes. Beastly place, your part of the country, I think. Yes, I am told it's very like your Shropshire. Not in the least like it. Do you stay here long? Can't say. Do you? Can't say. Large traces of marshes about here, I believe. Yes, what of that? Out of the way villages there, they tell me. Curious little public houses and smithies and that. Waiter! Yes, sir? Is that horse of mine ready? I brought right into the door, sir. I say, look here, you, sir. The lady won't ride today. The weather won't do. Very good, sir. Drummle glanced at me with an insolent triumph on his great jowled face that cut me to the heart. Mr. Drummle? I did not seek this conversation, and I don't think it's an agreeable one. I am sure it's not. And therefore, with your leave, I will suggest that we hold no kind of communication in the future. Quite my opinion, and what I should have suggested myself, or done, more likely, without suggesting. But don't lose your temper. Haven't you lost enough without that? What do you mean, sir? Waiter! Look here, you sir. You quite understand that the young lady won't ride today, and that I dine at the young lady's. Quite so, sir. I washed the weather and the journey from my face and hands, and went out to the memorable old house. In the room where the dressing table stood, I found Miss Havisham and Estella. Miss Havisham seated on a settee near the fire, and Estella on a cushion at her feet. And what wind blows you here, Pip? Miss Havisham, I went to Richmond yesterday to speak to Estella, and finding that some wind had blown her here, I followed. What I have to say to Estella, Miss Havisham, I will say before you presently, in a few moments. It will not surprise you, it will not displease you. I am as unhappy as you can ever have meant me to be. Well? When you first caused me to be brought here, Miss Havisham, I suppose I really did come here as any other chance boy might have come, as a kind of servant, to gratify a want or a whim and to be paid for it. Aye, Pip, you did. But when I fell into the mistake I have so long remained in, at least you led me on. 
Yes, I let you go on. Was that kind? Who am I, for God's sake, that I should be kind? Well, what else? I have been thrown among one family of your relations, Miss Havisham, and I should be false and base if I did not tell you that you deeply wrong both Mr. Matthew Pocket and his son Herbert if you suppose them to be otherwise than generous, open, and incapable of anything designing or mean. They are your friends. They made themselves my friends when they supposed me to have superseded them. What do you want for them? Miss Havisham, if you would spare the money to do my friend Herbert a lasting service in life, I could show you how. What else? Estella, you know I love you. You know that I have loved you long and dearly. I should have said this sooner, but for my long mistake, it induced me to hope that Miss Havisham had meant us for one another. While I thought you could not help yourself, as it were, I refrained from saying it. But I must say it now. Preserving her unmoved countenance, Estella shook her head. I know, I know, I have no hope that I shall ever call you mine, Estella. Still, I love you. I have loved you ever since I first saw you in this house. It would have been cruel in Miss Havisham, horribly cruel, to practice on the susceptibility of a poor boy and torture me through all these years with a vain hope and idle pursuit if she had reflected on the gravity of what she did. But I think she did not. I think that in the endurance of her own trial, she forgot mine, Estella. It seems there are sentiments, fancies, I don't know how to call them, which I'm not able to comprehend. When you say you love me, I know what you mean as a form of words, but nothing more. You address nothing in my breast. You touch nothing there. I have tried to warn you of this now, have I not? Surely it is not in nature. It is in my nature. Is it not true that Bentley Drummle is in town here pursuing you? It is quite true. You cannot love him, Estella! What have I told you? Do you still think in spite of it that I do not mean what I say? I would never marry him, Estella. Why not tell you the truth? I'm going to be married to him. Estella, dearest Estella, put me aside forever. You have done so, I well know. But bestow yourself on some worthier person than Drummle! Oh, don't be afraid of my being a blessing to him. I shall not be that. Come. Here is my hand. Do we part on this you, visionary boy, or man? Oh, How can I see you, Drummle's nonsense, wife? Nonsense, nonsense. You'll get me out of your thoughts in a week. Out of my thoughts, Estelle. You are part of my existence. Part of myself. You have been in every line that I have ever read since I first came here. The young common boy whose poor heart you wounded even then. Estella, to the last hour of my life, you cannot choose but remain part of my character, part of the little good in me, part of the evil. God bless you. God forgive you. And so I left her. I struck off to walk all the way to London. I could not go back to the inn and see Drummle there. I could not bear to sit upon the coach and be spoken to. I could do nothing half so good for myself as tire myself out. It was past midnight when I crossed London Bridge. My readiest access to the temple was through Whitefriars Gate. 
The night porter examined me with much attention as he held the gate open for me to pass in. A note for you, sir. The messenger that brought it said, would you be so good as to read it by the light of my lantern? I opened it and read, in Wemmick's writing, Don't go home! Great Expectations was written by Charles Dickens. This production was adapted by Marcus Baisley and narrated by Jeremy Drakes. It featured Christopher Anderton as Joe, Wemmick and Drummle, Marcus Baisley as Compasson, Porter and Galley, Jessica Bryan as Miss Havisham, Victoria Hamblin as Estella and Mrs Joe, William Hollyhead as Herbert Pocket, Dylan Lincoln as Magwitch and Pumplechook, Rosie Marsh as Biddy, Alexander Pankhurst as Sergeant and Jaggers, and Rupert Sadler as Pip. The title music is Moonlight Hall by Kevin MacLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons. Recorded, designed and edited by Andrew Crane, Great Expectations was produced by Helen Johnson in association with Blackshaw Theatre Company and Cyphers Theatre Company. Life's a game, the world's a stage, and we are all merely role players. Join members of Blackshaw Theatre Company as they try on all the many roles there are to play. You are Blackshaw Theatre. Nobody else knows. You're also investigators of inexplicable happenings. (laughs) Deputies of federal law enforcement. Master thieves and con artists. Hooray! (laughs) Merely role players, where theatrical people play role-playing games. New episodes every week, new stories and new genres every season. Just search for Merely Role Players wherever you find podcasts.